The church is called to be separate from the world, to be salt and light. But what happens when instead of being separate from the world, the church compromises with the world and actually becomes a part of the world? We're going to talk about that on this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all is faithbyreason.net. There you will find hundreds of hours of study material, blogs, videos, and podcasts. And we are continuing our study of the book of Revelation in Revelation chapter 2, the seven letters to seven churches, or the epistles of Jesus. Yes, these are seven epistles written by Jesus himself, well, rather dictated to uh, the Apostle John by Jesus, so it's obviously some important information here. So we are taking time to slowly go through these uh, short epistles because they are just densely packed with information that is going to just greatly impact us. In fact, I would say that these two chapters, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, are the most important to the contemporary church. And we're going to, we've talked about why in the past, so let's just start by diving in to um, this, the, the passage on the next church, the church at Pergamos. Pergamos is the, again, the third church. We've already gone uh, through and studied the first two, the church at Ephesus and the church at Smyrna. So now here we go with the church at Pergamum or Pergamos, and depending on what your, which Bible you use, I'm going to use Pergamos. Reading from the New King James. Uh, verse 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos writes, these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, because you have those there who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols, and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Okay, so I think as we can see just by looking at this verse superficially, these verses superficially, is that the... They had, Pergamos got a bit of a mixed report card. There's some good, but some very, very bad stuff happening. And we're going to get into it. But, but before we break these uh, verses down, as usual, we're going to start with the historic point of view and look at the actual city of Pergamos and the church in Pergamos. Because again, these are these are, these seven churches are seven actual churches and actual cities in a, ancient Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. Pergamos was a very prominent city during the first century, during the time this letter was written. But unlike um, Ephesus and Sardis, which were prominent because of their riches, uh, mainly due to the fact that they were port cities and they were the center of trade, international um, trade at the time, and the merchants made the city rich. Now, Pergamos was rich not because of trade, but because of politics and religion. Pergamos was considered the eastern capital of the Roman Empire to a great degree. And because of that, there are a lot of influential people going in and out of the city all the time. The you know, prominent senators from Rome would visit there, so it became prominent in that sense. It was kind of like Washington, D.C. here in America, and it's in the corridors of power, so very powerful people would travel through the area. And also, politics and religion during that time were always intertwined, so it became a very important religious center. Now, it started, Pergamus's prominence started actually a couple of empires earlier with the, the Persian Empire, when they were marching 
um, west to conquer Greece, they um, they made Pergamus one of their one of their capital cities. And when that ha when that happened, it of course it, it gained that that kind of power and influence and as a an area of where the uh, corridors of power were. Now, when the Greek Empire defeated the Persians, well, when you defeat your enemy, what you want to do is take over their prominent areas and kind of show your dominance. So when Alexander the Great and the Greeks conquered the Persian Empire, they said, well, you know, your old capital is now going to be our capital. So Pergamus then became a capital, one of the capitals of the Greek Empire, and of course, again, in the corridors of power. And subsequently, when the Roman Empire defeated the Greek Empire, they did the same thing. You know, your capital is going to be our capital because we're going to show our dominance over you. And we get to where we where we are in this letter, where it is, again, it's one of the eastern capitals of the Roman Empire. So tons of power and influence were in that city. And of course, the church, the Christian church that was established in Pergamos had to deal with the issues of being in an, a very, very um, powerful secular area. And since the Roman Empire was not very favorable towards Christians, how did the how did they survive? Well, Ephesus, as we we know from a couple um, broadcasts ago, Ephesus dealt with their their church their church and their issues by just being really strong on the word. They were very strong on doctrine. They didn't compromise their doctrine. Sardis, on the other hand, they were persecuted. They just had to endure the persecution. They they were strong. They were persecuted, and they just again they had to deal with it. The Church of Pergamos, on the other hand, they had a different way of, of dealing with the, the the world around them in that secular world. And their way of doing it was to be non-threatening. The, the Ephesians were pretty threatening because they were so, so hardcore on their doctrine. The uh, Smyrna was threatening in their own way because no matter what you did, no matter how hard you persecuted the Church of Smyrna, they just prevailed, they just held on, they just kept worshiping God. The Church of Pergamum, they decided that they were going to be inclusive and inviting and, again, non-threatening. They compromised, and we're going to talk about that quite a bit more. Uh, one other special thing to note is what the name means. Each one of these churches, the, the name that they have is another layer of complexity that Jesus had when he chose these particular seven churches to write these letters to. The word Pergamos means, well, it's, it's, it's two words that come together. There's the latter part of the word, which is gamos, which refers to a coupling or a marriage. We, we see remnants of gamos in some of our current words like polygamy and monogamy. We see that gamo in there. And that, again, refers to um, intimate relations between people. And um, the first part actually means undesirable or unholy. So when you put the para, para which means, you know, again, undesirable, unholy, with gamos, which is a union or a marriage, you get unholy marriage or mixed marriage and that's what Pergamum means it means, it means a, a, a union between an unholy or undesirable union and that's going to again be it's, it's basically a pun for um, the church at Pergamus okay so with the history out of the way let's just break down the verse the verse is um, Revelation chapter 2 verse 12 to the angel or the messenger of the church in Pergamus write these things says he who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now, as we know, we've talked about before, in every one of these letters, Jesus gives a different title of himself. And that title uh, is, is very germane to what's going on with the church. It's, it's problems and, and the praise. And in this case, Jesus calls himself he who has a sharp two-edged sword. 
So those of you who have you know, been studying the Bible for any length of time, you know what the idiom of a sharp two-edged sword is. It's actually the Bible. In fact, in uh, the book of Hebrews, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, it says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even into the division of soul and spirit, and of the joints and marrow, and is the discerner of the thoughts and talents of the heart. So, again, when Jesus is calling himself here the word of God, it's particularly the two-edged sword that separates, that divides, and divides, you know, what's good from what's bad. So, apparently, whatever is going on here in Pergamos, they need to be aware of the Bible in that it divides what's holy from unholy. All right, so let's keep going to the next verse. I know your works. And this is common. He's, Jesus says this in every single one of the letters. He, Jesus knows our works, and which is good news or bad news, depending on what your works are. I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's, where Satan's throne is. Okay, let's, let's stop and look at this. This is very interesting. Where Satan's throne is. There are a lot of misnomers about Satan, especially in the secular world, but even again uh, with some Christians who aren't very well learned. A lot of, of these people will believe that Satan is more powerful than he actually is. He is not. Compared to God, he is not powerful at all, even though the the common depiction of him in pop, of Satan in popular culture is someone who is God's equal and his enemy who and, and that there's some kind of war going on between the forces of God and the forces of Satan and they're pretty evenly matched and they just go back and forth in this war. That's not even remotely the case. God, Satan is nowhere near as powerful as God. He is infinitesimally less powerful than God. God created Satan. He could wipe him out in a second. We will see later in the book of Revelation when Satan is finally defeated, God just has a random angel toss him into the bottomless pit without any effort. If you, uh, God to Satan is, is, is a bigger chasm between you and an ant. That is, that is how different in the power levels are. So Satan is not powerful and Satan is not omnipresent. God is omnipresent. God can be as everywhere at once. God can be speaking to me and you across the world, across the country. No, any time of day or night, he can be speaking with millions of people at the same time. He's omnipresent. Satan is not omnipresent. Satan has locality. Now, granted, because Satan is a spirit, he is not as, as defined to, the, to a physical area as we are, but still he has locality. So when it says here, this is where Satan's throne is, I don't believe that was a metaphor. I believe Jesus is speaking. This is where Satan's physical throne is. What does that mean? Why does he Satan need a physical area? Well, because if we, we've studied in the past um, in the supernatural worldview, which, by the way, I highly, highly recommend you read and listen to the, the blogs and podcasts about the supernatural realm. You will not understand the Bible. You will never, ever fully understand the Bible unless you understand and embrace the supernatural worldview. And it's not very popular because, again, it gets very spiritual and all kind of spooky with some of the stuff that goes on in the world that we can't see. But again, it is vital to understanding what's truly going on in the entire biblical narrative. What we learned in a supernatural worldview is that there are areas on the earth where you could say that heaven and earth meet or the spiritual realm and the physical realm meet. And these are areas where the physical, excuse me, spiritual beings can transverse, transverse and come into the material world. They can't just materialize anywhere they want. They have to either be summoned to this world by human beings, and that's a whole other subject for another day, or they can come, they can go from the spiritual realm to the physical realm through at a physical location. One of them prominently in the Bible is uh, Jacob's ladder in, in Genesis, where Jacob sees angels, good angels, going up and down 
these stairs from heaven to earth. These are angels that were, have been sent by God to do earthly missions. And this is this point where Jacob saw this ladder is one of the physical points where the spiritual realm and the physical realm meet, a, a gateway, as it were, to between the realms. There are others. There's, for example, Mount Hermon or Mount Bashan, as it's also called, is according to the apocryphal book of Enoch. This is where the angels who sinned, and we, we see them in Genesis chapter 6, and again, go to the supernatural worldview to get uh, more details on that. This is where those angels came in and committed the sin that caused them to be locked up. You, you read about that in the book of Jude and the book of, of, of Second Peter, where the angels who left their estate and came down to earth and sinned. So it happened on Mount Hermon. And there, there are other places um, around the world where, again, the spiritual and the physical meet and a gateway is there. And it's obvious that Pergamos was one of those places. This is, it was Satan's physical throne at the time. And we'll talk about why um, in a few minutes. But briefly, as, as I stated, Pergamos was a corridor of political power and religious power. So if Satan is going to be physically located someplace, he's going to be located in a place where he has the maximum amount of influence. Satan is still the god, little g, of this world. He still has that influence. He influences all governments, all political areas. And at the time, you know, the Roman Empire was the most prominent empire. So it would make sense that um, Satan, if he had a physical throne, it would be in a place where those corridors of power were. All right, let's keep reading. Your Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas, my faithful martyr, was killed among you, where Satan dwells. So this, this is the good part of the report card. Jesus commends this church for holding fast to his name, even though they are in this area of massive corruption and massive secular influence. They held fast to his name and they didn't deny him. So that's the good news. So let's get to the bad part of the report card. Verse four, but I have a few things against you because you have those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. All right, what does this mean? Who is Balaam and who is Balak? Well, unless you are a student of the Old Testament, you probably aren't too familiar with Balaam and Balak. Now, you may have heard about Balaam just because of a pretty funny incident that happened with him. We see in the, in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 22, where Balaam was off, was going to do something that God didn't like. He was going to a city that God told him not to go to, and he was riding a donkey into the city, and there was an angel on the gate of the city that was there to kill Balaam because he was being disobedient. Balaam couldn't see the angel. His donkey could, so the donkey stopped. Balaam didn't know what was happening. What was happening? He thought that the donkey was being stubborn, so he cursed the donkey and he beat the donkey. And then, the, then God gave the donkey the ability to talk, and the donkey said, "Hey, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. Hey, why are you beating on me? There's an angel there who's going to kill you. I'm just trying to stop you from dying." So, don't tell me God doesn't have a sense of humor. But the full story of Balaam: Balaam was a prophet, a, a prophet given the gift of prophecy by God. So he would he would hear what God would say, and he would speak it. He was very good at it, um, very good to the point where he decided to sell his services. He became a prophet for hire or a prophet of a prophet for profit. Okay, bad joke. But anyway, moving on. So Balaam was around during the time of the wilderness wandering when the children of Israel, they had uh, escaped, uh, they had come out of Egypt and they were headed towards the promised land. And during the time of the wilderness wandering, they become a mighty army. They had a lot of young men who were great fighters, and they had they on their way to the, they went to the promised land, conquering and defeating um, lots of enemies on the way. 
and they were headed towards the area of Moab, which is an, um, an, an ancient uh, an ancient kingdom on the way to to the Promised Land. And Balak was the leader of Moab, and he saw this Israeli army coming, and he was afraid. He didn't want to. He didn't want them to conquer him. So he goes and hires Balaam to prophesy against uh, Israel. So Balaam went to to try to do it, but unfortunately, God didn't want Israel to be cursed for obvious reasons. So every time Balaam tried to curse Israel, he ended up blessing them. So he tried to curse Israel three times, and he ended up blessing Israel three times. So understandably, you know, Balak was upset about this. He says, "Look, man, I, I paid you money to curse these people, and you keep blessing them." And Balak said, "Hey, I, I can only tell you what God tells me. So, you know, I, 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 there's nothing I can do about that. God wants them blessed; they're going to be blessed." But here's something we can do. So Balaam gave Balak this idea. He said, "Look, the." The, the young men fighting for Israel, they're all virgins. You know, according to their law, they are not allowed to have intercourse outside of the marriage covenant. So these guys are all unmarried. That's why they're, they're the, the top fighters, because they're unmarried. They don't have a family at home to deal with. So they've never been with a woman. So here's what you do. When they get close to the city, you go take some of your prettiest girls, your prettiest young ladies, and you put them in the gate of the, of the city and have them be seductive. Well, and when the guys get there to conquer the city, they're going to be entranced by these women. They're going to take them and make wives of them. They're going to basically have sex with them. And you're going to, that'll mingle your two people together and it will keep you, keep them from conquering you and it'll com completely corrupt them. So Balak thought it was a good idea. He did it. He got his prettiest girls to get into the gates of the city. And sure enough, the Israel, Israelite men found them attractive and they took them and made wives of them and it, it worked. These women were the stumbling block before the children of Israel that completely derailed the invasion. And there was sexual immorality there. So that's what this, what we see here in verse 14. So essentially, the sin of, of Balaam or the doctrine of Balaam is number one, uh, compromising for money and influence. That's why you know, Balaam was using his, his God-given gifts to, to gain money and power and influence. And also compromising with the world and... Uh, leading other children of God into the same compromise and corruption leading to idolatry, sin, and even worse. Okay, so that is a report card on Pergamus, the good and the bad. Another um, interesting thing about Pergamus is like all the other churches, everything, every detail um, in these letters is there to enhance and help us understand what's going on here. Jesus made these letters extremely dense and there is meaning in everything, again, including the names of these cities that the churches are in. And Pergamos has, has, has that same attribute. The word Pergamos is a combination of two words, para and gamos. Para means uh, a defiled, unholy, undesirable. And gamos is the root word that we use speaking of a union, usually a, um, a sexual or marital union. And we see we see remnants of, of gamos even in our, own, in our own language today when we use words like uh, polygamy, you know, the, which is you know, union between more than one person, more than two people, or monogamy, a union between two people. So you see that gami, that gamos is there. So if you look at that, it really means unholy or undesirable union or unholy, undesirable marriage. That's what that's basically what Pergamos is. It's an, a, basically a mixed marriage in every bad sense of that word. So at uh, this point in the study is when we look at the other three levels. We just we uh, finish the historic level and we have to do the the level as it affects the, the ecclesiastic 
uh, ecclesiastical church, the the personal level and the prophetic level, and I usually do that in that order. But I want to change the order around and do the prophetic level next because it encompasses the church ecclesiastical level as well as the personal level, as you'll see. I don't think it takes a whole lot of imagination to understand and, and to see areas where the church at large has compromised with the world to be accepted, to be tolerated, to get praise and money and, and just you know be accepted by the world and, and take on the world, the entrapments of the world. And, and personally, the same thing. We often personally compromise ourselves and our belief in God in order to be accepted, in order not to be shunned, in order to keep or maintain our power. And we'll talk about that as it, as it um, relates to the prophetic um, area. And I, because I think that the prophetic level is really, really interesting. It's going to take some time. It'll be a, this will be a longer episode, but it's really worth it to see where this, where the church, how the church got to the point of, of where it was in Pergamus and, um, how it affects us to this very day. So on a prophetic level, I've said before, we've talked about this um, for the past few episodes, that these seven churches in the order in which the letters were written um, are seen to represent the entire history of the church. It tells the history of the church beforehand. Each one of these churches represent a different era of time in the last 2000 years of church history. The Ephesian church represents the Apostolic Church of the first and second century. They were really strong on doctrine because they were, you know, they lived through the time of most of the disciples, but they were weak on love. A Smyrna, as we talked about last week, is the persecuted church, the church that suffered greatly under Rome. Yet, despite that persecution, the church grew. As the saying goes, the growth of the church, the growth of the seed of the church was watered by the blood of the martyrs. So, at the end of the of this of this period of time, of, of the Samaritan period of time, the church had been driven underground. They were being furiously persecuted. Um, they were imprisoned, beaten, and killed, and basically driven underground. So then the next church, Pergamus, would represent that next uh, stage of the, of the church age, which would be the medieval church. And how did this, how did this change happen? What changed for Christians and, and what made this church different? What well, all begins with a very colorful man, a Roman emperor known as Constantine the Great, who ruled for the early part of the fourth century, the, the 300s. During the time of Constantine's reign, the empire, the Roman empire was suffering its own issues. It had a deep debt, it had a high taxes, had a virtually worthless currency because the money had been so devalued. It had a pretty apathetic population that was more concerned with their entertainment and their excesses and their largesse than reality. And they were had a huge government bureaucracy. They, they were suffering external threats from barbaric zealots in other countries who despised the Romans for their lavish lifestyle. Internally, they were, they were split apart politically by two uh, political groups who pretty much hated and despised each other and that hate and despise was growing greatly to the point where there was a, a, a burgeoning civil war and, and they were essentially being invaded by neighboring immigrants who wanted the benefits of Rome without the responsibility of actually being a Roman citizen again and all the while the, the, the citizens of Rome were again too intoxicated by their largesse their entertainment and their sports and their perceived invincibility to even care about it that sounds eerily familiar, doesn't it? Does it remind you of another country that's suffering these exact same, going through this exact same predicament? Huh, interesting. But let's move on. 
So Constantine had to deal with a civil war. Basically, the eastern part of the empire was was splitting up, and they were fighting against the western part, which Constantine ruled over. So in uh, 312 AD, there was a climactic battle called the Battle of Milvian Bridge, where Constantine would stage his final campaign against a rival emperor in the east. So the day before, the night before that climactic battle, Constantine claimed he saw the cross, the Christian cross, a vision of that cross, and he heard the words, in this sign conquer. Well, Constantine went out the next day, he and his army, and they won the battle. They were able to unite the empire in the civil war, and Constantine was able to consolidate his power. And so because he saw this cross, Constantine figured that the Christian God was on his side, and Constantine converted to Christianity. This was incredible. This is one of the most monumental events in history, Christian and secular history, the, the conversion of Constantine. As a Christian, of course, Constantine, he, um, he legalized Christianity. Christianity was now legal. Instead of being the pariahs of society, Christians were now able to come out of the catacombs, come out of hiding, and be accepted in the Roman Empire. Not just accepted, they got prominent positions. Again, as a Christian, Constantine favored Christians at court. Christians were his advisors now. Um, he Constantine enacted several un, unprecedented reforms. He, he um, again, he Christianized Rome to a great degree. He formed the Council of Nicaea, a very famous council that um, voted on um, on consolidating the Bible because he wanted to have the Bibles available to people. And so this council uh, brought together all the books of the Old and New Testament. Um, they came up with the with the creeds about uh, Jesus and salvation and the disciples and blood atonement and the virgin birth and all these things they, they made those into one coherent doctrine Constantine forbade work on Sundays which was a big deal for the many slaves in the empire and gave them a day off and he had many significant church edifices built including the church of the holy sepulcher which exists to this day on the purported site of Jesus' tomb um, additionally and significantly Constantine named himself the head of the church as its chief pontiff or chief priest or pontifex maximus that was his title you know emperors aren't really known for being humble but constantine made himself pontifex maximus and some of you may know about a another group of world leaders who who have ruled uh, the world and or various parts of it for many many centuries who also claim the title of pontifex maximus in fact there's a someone to this day who claims that that uh, title and you can figure out who he is. If you, if you don't know who he is now, you will know by the end of this episode. So the reign of Constantine definitely brought a great deal of relief to the early church and drastically improved their lives. But there are some valid reasons to question the veracity of Constantine's conversion. You see, one thing Constantine did, this is often a myth that, there's a, there's a myth that Constantine made Christianity the, uh, the uh, legal religion, official, excuse me, official religion of Rome. Uh, he actually didn't do that. That would be one of his his fourth successor, uh, successor, Theodosius, would do that. But we'll get to him in a minute. You see, Constantine didn't just legalize Christianity; he legalized all the religions of the all religions of the various cultures in Rome. And also, that title, Pontifex Maximus, he didn't invent that title. He claimed it, but he didn't he didn't invent it. It was actually claimed by some previous Roman emperors. And so, so they were not only the head of of the pagan priesthoods of of Rome previously. But they were also considered God and a God above all other gods. You see, during the Roman Empire, they didn't mind if you served other gods because they, they as they were conquering and absorbing other cultures, they realized that they wouldn't, they couldn't just um, become a theocracy with a, with a single god. 
they allowed all the all the people who they conquered to worship their other gods but you has had to worship caesar as god as well you had to worship the emperor as god above all the other gods and if you did that you were fine and all the pagans were willing to do that christians were not which is one of the reasons why christians were so persecuted many historians christians and secular including myself believe that constantine wasn't really a christian but that he was instead a very very savvy politician who saw the disunity of his empire and the civil wars and the disruption that was happening. And he thought that religion would be a really great way to ease the tensions and bring unity to a fractured empire. Why? Because I mean, there are two ways to get people to behave. You can either use force or you can use something intangible. Force, military force, using a police force to create, to create a police state is, is effective. I mean, people are afraid of the military. So if you use them to keep order, well, yeah, it's, it's effective, but it's not terribly effective because people will only be obedient as long as they can see or feel the military pressure. For example, um, one of my problems I have is I tend to drive very fast. I'm a, I'm a speeder. And the reason I can get away with speeding most of the time is because there aren't uh, enough police to police every single person individually. I know that for every one police officer, there's, you know, our, our highway patrolman, there are thousands of people who he has to try to keep in line. So I know there's when I speed, there's a pretty good chance that I'm not going to get caught. So I keep speeding. On the other hand, if I thought that there was a, if I thought that, that God would give me a ticket every time I speed and God is omnipresent, then I would never speed because I know I'd get a ticket every single time. And so while using force to keep people in line it can work, it, it strains resources because you just don't have enough. People will be obedient as long as they feel the physical threat of the police force. However, religion, on the other hand, makes people police themselves because if you believe that these uh, unseen gods are, are going to smack you down every time you do something wrong, well, you're going to keep doing right because, you know, you know, they're always there. There are these unseen spiritual forces who, who don't have the same locality as, uh, as a human being who's in the military or the police. So being the smart man, Constantine decided, let's, let's come up with a religion that will unite the empire. And he likely found Christianity to be the most tolerable and least offensive faith to openly embrace due to the piety and humility of his followers. And the fact that they were hard grown, uh, hardworking, that they were moral, that he didn't have to worry about too much about them stabbing him in the back, literally or figuratively, that again, they're the Christian faith tells you to be moral, to respect authority to to give to others to be loving all these things Constantine probably thought hey this is a great religion they won't threaten me and they won't threaten my rule they will be obedient and they will be good hard-working pious people so Christianity is the winner and also helped that Christianity was growing so rapidly and it was and people were so so effectively evangelizing so that was Constantine so eventually Constantine died and he had a couple of a couple three successors and they kind of went back and forth between uh, going back to the old ways of persecuting Christians and you know making Christian Christianity a criminal act again, and they went back and forth between that and a couple. Another one would bring some of Constantine's reforms back, and the one after that would make Christianity illegal again. Illegal again. Finally, his fourth success, his fourth successor, was a, a emperor named Theodosius. And unlike Constantine, Theodosius was in all likelihood truly a Christian, and he did some radical things that his heart was in the right place, I think, but it, the 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 execution was poor. He did what people uh, give Constantine credit for doing. He, Theodosius, made Christianity the official religion of Rome, number one. And number two, and this is bad actually, he, he, well, he outlawed all the other religions, which, you know, so be it. But the bad thing he did was he 
forced everyone to become a Christian. He said if you, if he made all other religions illegal and Christianity was the only legal religion and you had to become a Christian by force. And this is bad because you, you can't force someone to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian is a choice to believe in the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus as payment for your sins. That has You have to choose it. You can't be forced into it. So when Theodosius forced it, he, he did something that, you know, that God never intended. And the results were catastrophic. Again, unlike the, the Christians who held on to their faith, despite what the world would say, despite what the law said at the time, the pagans were not quite, were not anywhere near that uh, convicted in their beliefs. So they went to church. They were forced to go to church. They would go there, but they weren't Christian. So now you had a, the Christian leadership now had a problem. Your churches were now filled to the brim with unrepentant pagans who had no desire to be Christians, but or and no desire to hear the Christian doctrine or the Christian message. They were only there because they had no choice to be. They were they were there because they didn't want to go to jail, and they were causing a ruckus in the church. They were not being obedient. They were doing their pagan practices in the church. It, 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 things were were at, to the point where you know they were about to tear themselves apart. The church was in serious trouble. But fortunately, or rather unfortunately. The Christians had some rescuers. There is a group of people who came to the rescue of the Christians to help them out. These people are called mystics. Now, if you have been following Faith by Reason for any length of time, you probably know who the mystics are. And you also know that they are some of my least favorite people to have ever lived. So for those of you who are new, let me explain to you what mystics are or who mystics are. In a very general sense, uh, mystics are groups who gain grow and maintain power through hoarding of knowledge and information that is either secret or very, very difficult to obtain. That's their only power. The power of a mystic is through hidden knowledge that they keep hidden. They don't let the general public have it or they make it so difficult for the general public to have this information that it's virtually impossible for anyone outside of this group of mystics to, to know what they know and they use this information as their power over other people. I will give you an example of a of a secular group of mystics, a common group of mystics. We call them attorneys or lawyers. Lawyers are mystics. Why? Because the only benefit, the only power an attorney has is that they know a certain amount of information, the law, better than you, and it's so difficult and expensive to learn the law that 99% of us don't bother doing it. We have other things to do. Mystics, I mean, excuse me, lawyers don't materially contribute anything to society. They are they are materially worthless. They don't manufacture any goods or services. They don't create anything new. They don't need create any technologies or apps. They don't build houses or practice medicine or do engineering or teach or do anything valuable. Their only reason for existence is that they have information that's difficult for the other, for the rest of us to to have and they, and that's why they have money and power. Let me just give you an example of how it works. Let's say you grow up and you're you're good with your hands. You're good working with wood and and, and various tools, and you get, get become good at being at being a handyman or whatnot, doing God jobs. And people hire you more and more, and your business grows, and you hire some more people on. And you become a general contractor. You become a successful contractor. What do you have to do? What are, what people tell you you need to do? Well, they'll tell you you need to get a lawyer. Why is that lawyer going to help you build houses or repair plumbing or? lay new foundations or do anything any of that stuff nope a lawyer is only there for one reason when they say why do you need a lawyer 
in case somebody else sues you. Because if someone else sues you for whatever reason, they will also have a lawyer. And if you don't have a lawyer yourself, they'll eat you alive because they'll know the law better than you. So you have to have a lawyer basically to protect you from other lawyers. That's the only reason that lawyers exist is to protect you from other lawyers. So if there were no lawyers, we would need that protection and we'd still have every, every manufactured good and service that we have today. So lawyers only exist because other lawyers exist. It's like the old protection racket that you maybe see or read about in, in old mafia stories where you have, you know, a mom and pop store, you know, they're just selling their goods on the corner store and a couple of big burly thugs will walk in and say, hey, you, you guys, you guys need to start paying us $500 a week in protection money. And I say, why should we do that? What if we don't want to pay you? What's going to happen then? Well, if you don't pay us your the protection money, we're going to come in here next week and wreck your store and beat you up. So you're paying them protection money to protect you from them. And that's what lawyers are. The only lawyers have a protection racket. They, you have to, you have to hire a lawyer. Why? Well, because if you don't hire a lawyer, some, another lawyer is going to sue you and you, you're going to get beat up. So you need to hire us to protect you from other lawyers. We're not going to actually contribute to your business in any measurable way, except as part of this protection racket. So as you can tell, I don't have a terribly high opinion of lawyers and the way laws practice these days. But anyway, that's. That's, that's a, an example I think we can all understand. But we want to focus on religious mystics. These are people who have abhorred information that they claim is from a higher power or from the quote-unquote gods. Where did these people get their start? Well, it all started thousands of years ago, back actually back in uh, the early chapters of Genesis, the Babel incident. I think we all know about the Tower of Babel. We've seen the pictures. We've heard the stories of in our Sunday school about the tower they built to reach the heavens and what God did. Well, the person who built, um, who, who began building Babel and who started the entire ancient Babylonian empire was a man named Nimrod. Nimrod was the first world dictator, the first world leader, and he had a wife who may have also been his mother, which is pretty disgusting. Her name was Semiramis. She was his queen and again, possibly his mother. Ew. But among other things, Semiramis led the worship of Nimrod as a god, namely the sun god. As a first world dictator, Semiramis, his wife, claimed that he, Nimrod, was the sun god. So as Nimrod was the first world, uh, the first secular world leader, um, Semiramis was the world's first leader of an creator and leader of the of organized religion. And of course, she had priests who helped her. These priests were her eyes and ears and, and, and ground soldiers who would spread the the message, the religious message of Nimrod's deity throughout the empire. And they were the ones who enforced the worship of Nimrod. Now, eventually Nimrod died, and there's some reason to believe that Semiramis may have been behind his death in order to gain more power. But shortly after he died, not too long after he died, uh, Semiramis became pregnant, which means that during a period where she should have been mourning, the our erstwhile queen kind of got busy with another person, which would be punishable by death. If people saw that during a time of mourning, she was actually having intercourse with another guy, well, again, she'd, she'd be killed for treason. However, Simramus was a clever lady. Well, she, she used the gospel story to her advantage. Now you may ask, wait a minute, how could she use the gospel story this, during the time of Genesis? The gospel hadn't been written. The entire Bible hadn't been written. That's where you're incorrect. No, the Bible hadn't physically been written. However, the first documentation of the gospel was not in the Bible. It was actually a mnemonic that God wrote in the very stars themselves. 
fact, I, I did a couple of, actually, I think three or four podcasts and, and blogs about the the gospel message that's in the stars. You can, there, I'm not the, I didn't just make this up. There's there's actually lots of Bible teachers who can who can show you this. You can look it up. You can Google it yourself, or or better yet, go to faithbyreason.net in the area shown here, and you can read more about it. But God put His message in the stars. And back in Genesis chapter chapters one and two, it says that the stars were created for signs and for symbols, and to and and for so the message of God is in the is is in the stars. I'm not talking about astrology. Astrology is where you use where people use constellations in the stars to tell the future, and it's paganistic. No, this is these are the constellations that tell a story from. Virgo, the virgin, all the way through Leo, the lion, the conquering king. It tells the entire, if you go through each one of these constellations, they go through a mnemonic of the entire story from the the fall of man all the way to through uh, to Jesus, the conquering king, coming back for a second coming. So that was already in the stars. So people knew God's plan before the Bible was even written. That's why when secular people say, well, you know, there are religions that are older than the Bible. No, there's not. In order for a religion, for a religion to be older than biblical Christianity, it would that religion would have to be older than the stars themselves, and I don't think even the most virulent seculars would contend that there is a religion that's older than the stars themselves. So anyway, Semiramis knew this, and she claimed that when Nimrod died, that she didn't cheat on him, that when Nimrod died, he ascended to the sun, and then one day the sun shone on her on her in a certain way, and she became impregnated by the spirit of Nimrod. And when Nimrod impregnated her, it was sort of an immaculate conception. They knew about the virgin birth. They knew that the seed of the woman would 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 uh, would be the savior, and the seed of the woman is, is a, a a inference to a virgin birth. So she claimed she had an immaculate conception from Nimrod, and that her child, who was named Tammuz, was not only a miraculous child; he was actually Nimrod resurrected. So Tammuz was not only the son of God, but he was God himself, and and of course she being the vessel for God, she became the mother of God, the holy mother, the blessed woman. Some of you who are really smart are starting, are starting to see some connections here. But let's move on. So now you have this unholy trinity. You have Nimrod, the, the father God. You have Semiramis, the holy mother. And you have Tammuz, the, the son of God. It's basically Tammuz. She's making Tammuz into Jesus. And people bought it. They believed her. They worshipped her. And her mystics enforced it. So a little a little while after this, we had the the event in Babel where the languages were confused. Where God comes down to see these tower that that they were building, and He confused the languages. And people who and the people who spoke the same language they got together and they went they dispersed throughout the earth and they started the various nations. But the mystics, these priests, their language was confused as well. So they would end up going to whatever nation spoke, whichever nation spoke the same language as them. But they also carried the false religion of Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz with them. Eventually, of course, these nations would gain a leader. Uh, some, some, a, some strong man, usually a man, would gain a certain amount of power and he would become the leader or the ruler or the king of this nation. Here's one thing you need to know that's very important about mystics. Mystics always go where the power is. Whenever, whenever power is consolidated, you will find mystics there. Whenever there is a king, you will find mystics at his court. Why? Because mystics ingratiate themselves by helping the king with the knowledge that they have. They know that religion is a more effective way to rule the people than force, as I explained earlier. So mystics, mystics would teach the king, hey, Mr. King, make yourself into a god. We'll, we'll 
get the people to worship you and we will get them to be obedient to you not because you have a military force which you know is a draining resource but because you are a god and you will punish them supernaturally and the kings liked that because it helped them be effective leaders and and the mystics liked it because it kept them in a powerful position at the king's court and you will find this throughout history if you look at the next major world empire was the egyptian empire ruled by pharaoh we see that at the end of genesis and and in exodus who was at pharaoh's side mystics we see them when moses came to pharaoh until to free the the children of israel from bondage who who did he encounter the mystics in fact some of these mystics were able to through some power that they gained demonically to uh mimic the first two plagues of that God sent on Egypt. Of course, they weren't able to do any more after that because they weren't as powerful. But the point is, everywhere there's power, there's there are mystics. So when Egypt was in power, the mystics were there. I think Paul named two of them, Janus and Jambres, in the New Testament. Paul named them in the New Testament. And then when the... Oh, and of course, when they went to Egypt, they took a version of the religion of Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz with them, and they renamed them to Egyptian names. Nimrod, Semiramis, and, and Tammuz became Osiris, Isis, and Horus. If you actually read the mythology around these Egyptian gods, it's eerily similar to exactly what happened with, with Nimrod and, and Semiramis and Tammuz. When the next world empire came around, which was the Assyrians, then the mystics moved to Assyria, and they renamed their pantheon, and they took and, and uh, Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz took on names like Dagon and Baal and Molech and Astarte and Ishtar. You saw this again through the Assyrians and then when the Babylonians took over, the mystics went to Babylon. We encounter them in the book of Daniel when Nebuchadnezzar had his dream that, the, that he, and Nebuchadnezzar called his mystics in to interpret the dream and they couldn't. Only Daniel could because Daniel had the, uh, was, was in touch with the true God. And then when the Greeks took over, sorry, when the Persians took over, the the, um, the Babylonian Empire, the second Babylonian Empire under Nim under Nebuchadnezzar, then the mystics went there, and you had the per Persian gods again like Ishtar and Zoroaster. Then when the Greek Empire under Alexander took over uh, from the Persians, the mystics went there, and they turned the the three gods into um, the, uh, the Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz suddenly became uh, Zeus and Aphrodite and Dionysus. And then when Rome took over Greece. Then the mystics went to Rome, and those same gods became Jupiter and Venus and Eros and Cupid, all those, they, they were always there. You will find throughout the world the same mother-child cults. You look at the screen, if you look at the the depiction there, you will see oh, why. how is it that almost every culture around the world has the same holy mother, holy child, holy father thing happening. Why? Because the mystics took that same ancient Babylonian religion and took it around the world. That's why in Revelation uh, chapter uh, 17 and 18, which we'll get to down the road a bit, Babylon is called the mother of harlots. Harlotry being idolatry. The, this is the mother of, she, Semiramis is the mother of all religions. She is the great whore of Babylon and the mystics are her spiritual children. So that brings us all the way back to where we were with, with um, the, the medieval church, the church that Theodosius started here and, and the problem of all of these um, uh, pagans being forced into Christianity, into the Christian church rather. And since the power was now with Christians, what, what would happen? Well, as you can guess, the mystics came to try to become Christians and ingratiate them with the Christian leadership by helping the Christians the way they 
try to help everyone in power, of course, to their own advantage. The mystics came to the Christian leadership and said, look, guys, we see your problem. We see that you have these hordes of pagans who don't want to obey you, who are, who are fighting against you. Here's what, here's what you need to do. We know how to handle this. We've done it before. Because you, you see, basically, in, in each case, the, the mystics had, had their pattern of every time they go to a new culture and, and try to ingratiate themselves, they would absorb some of the native mythology and culture into their dogma, but they would always keep and promote some version of the king father Nimrod, the queen mother goddess Semiramis, and the divine offspring Temuz, as we've just seen. And they instructed the Christians, hey, you guys can do the same thing. All you have to do is rename some of your um, your, your Christian figures, give them, give them names of some of the pagans or actually the inverse take some of these pagan gods and rituals and give them Christian names blend the two together so that it'll be more palatable to them and they'll have an easier time worshiping your Christian God so the mystics advise the church leaders to simply adopt that their operational method of assimilation again nominally merging Christianity with paganism by clothing those pagan gods and practices in, in Christian trappings the idea was that this would make the transition to Christianity easier for the pagans and eventually as the pagans became true converts and fully adopted Christianity they could eliminate the pagan elements you can you know get rid of all the pagan trappings and it'll be 100% Christian thus Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz became the primary quote-unquote Christian pantheon of God the Father, the Virgin Mary, the Holy Mother, and Jesus the Divine Son. They just basically slapped their names onto God the Virgin Mary, who was never meant to be worshipped by the way, and Jesus. And then all the various and sundry pagan gods of harvest, luck, strength, love, lightning, thunder, oceans, and whatever, they just renamed them saints, such as Peter, Paul, John, Thomas, and whoever else the mystics decided to throw in and all the various pagan ceremonies and festivals were also christianized don't believe me well let's look at a couple of really really popular pagan festivals that were christianized one such festival that exemplifies this merger is a celebration we call christmas <laughs> christmas is a christianized version of the popular pagan holiday centered around the sun god who was contemporarily at that time known as sol invictus which again is basically nimrod the sol invictus was the sun god and here's how here's how the it went. Here, first of all, if you're even a remotely sophisticated Christian, you know that Jesus was not born anywhere near December 25th. Absolutely not. Jesus was most likely. We've talked about this in the. You can look up um, the series on Jesus where we talk about his nativity. He was most likely born in late summer. Why do we know this? Well, number one, it snows in Israel at that time. It's freezing. He would have fro frozen to death in a barn. Also, you had shepherds out in the field at night. It would be too cold for sheep to be out at night in, on, in late December. They Again, they would freeze to death as well. It was most likely the shepherds were out there because it was a time of year when the sheep are sheared for their wool. And they keep them outside because it's more convenient than marching them back and forth into the barn. And that happens in around late um, August, early September, which is probably around the time Jesus was born. So he was probably born in midsummer. It doesn't matter because we were never told to celebrate Jesus' birth. But anyway... Why is December 25th celebrated? Because again, it's the, it's the sun god, the S-U-N, the sun, S-U-N, of God. His birth is considered to be December 25th. Why? Because at the time of the so-called winter solstice, which is December 21st, the sun, S-U-N, is at its lowest point in the daytime sky. It would stay in that low level for three more days and then begin to rise gradually until it reached its highest point at the summer solstice, which when, at the point the sun is highest in the sky, this is our summer. So the pagan tradition is that the son of God, S-U-N, 
died on December 21st, stayed dead for three days, and then God's son, S-U-N, was reborn on December 25th. So it's pretty easy to see how this was adopted by the church by replacing S-U-N with S-O-N, and the celebration became a mass or mass for Christ or a Christ mass. You're starting to see what's going on here, aren't you? In fact, here, let's talk a few about a few of those traditions. One of the popular traditions from the celebration was to take a large log called the Yule, Y-U-L-E, which is ancient Chaldean word for child, and burn this Yule log in a fireplace on December 25th. I'm sorry, December 21st. They would then let the ashes lay there for three days, and then on the third day, replace the log with an evergreen tree decked with gold and silver to celebrate life. Yeah, that's right, folks. That's a Christmas tree. When you plant, when you put your Christmas tree up last year, you were doing a pagan ritual. When you decked it with gold and silver trimmings and little globes and whatnot, you were actively participating in a pagan in a pagan tradition while you were allegedly celebrating the birth of Jesus. Oh, and, and it's not just conjecture on my part. It's actually in the Bible. Yes, that's right, folks. The Christmas tree as a pagan symbol is in the Bible. Let's read from the book of Jeremiah, chapters uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 5. And it says, Thus saith the Lord, Do not learn the way of the Gentiles. Do not be dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the Gentiles are dismayed at them. Hmm, signs in the heavens, what could that mean? For the customs of the people are futile. For one cuts a tree from the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with an axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are up li upright like a palm tree, and they cannot speak, and they must be carried, because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, nor can they do any good. Folks, that's the description of a Christmas tree. If you read everything in context, God is talking about the the, the Christmas tree, the cre this tree decked in gold and silver as a, as a symbol for paganism, and he tells us not to do it, yet we do it anyway. Why? Because we've compromised with the world. What would the world think if we didn't celebrate Christmas with them? What if we said, hey, you know what, I'm not going to celebrate this because I'm a Christian, and this is not the birth of Jesus, and all these things are, are paganism, paganis excuse me, paganistic, which they are, by the way, all the things, if you all the things that have to do with Christian with uh, Christmas. Uh, holly is is a, a paganistic. People you druids use holly for casting spells. Mistletoe is paganistic. Wreaths are paganistic. All this stuff is pagan. If you tell someone you're not going to do that, they're going to think, "Wait, well, you're still, what kind of religious fanatic are you? You're just kind of weirdo. You're going to deny your kids the happiest time of the year for presents and all this stuff just because of your silly Christian traditions, or your, your because of your uh, Christian religious intolerance." Uh, well, no, I guess I don't want to do that. I don't want to be seen as weird. So I guess I'll just keep uh, doing all these pagan practices on the supposed birthday of Jesus, even though it's not his birthday, even though it, these are all pagan traditions and I'm supposed to be a Christian. I'll do them anyway because I don't want to be rejected. Yeah, that's called compromise, compromising with the world for your comfort. Oh, but it gets worse. See, at least with Chris, at least with Christmas, they actually tried to throw the name Christ in there to, to make it a little more palatable. Uh, the other celebration, which is, which is frankly the a, a day that we're supposed to, that God does want us to to celebrate an act that Jesus did, and that would be His resurrection. That holiday, we don't, we don't even, they don't even bother changing the name. Easter, which is which we, what we celebrate when we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Easter is is a pagan name in and of itself. It's actually the name of Ishtar, who is a who is basically the Persian version of Semiramis. Ishtar is slightly transliterated, uh, this tr slightly transliterated, 
transliterated into the English as Easter. Easter and Ishtar are the same thing. Ishtar, who is again another name for Semiramis, was the goddess of fertility. That's why you have those fertility symbols like rabbits and eggs during Resurrection Day. So when you call the Resurrection Day of Christ the most holy day in all Christianity, when you call that Ishtar, you are basically slapping the name of the mother of harlots onto the most holy and sacred day in all of Christianity. When you have your kids hunting Easter eggs and chasing rabbits around and doing all these spring fertility festivals, you are basically taking paganism and slapping it onto what's supposed to be the most holy day of the year. That is how deep the corruption has gone and how that corruption still persists to this day. So let's, let's go back to the, to the fourth century. Why would the church leaders voluntarily go along with such a blatant corruption of their faith? Why would they allow the, the pagans to, to compromise Christianity? Why? It's very simple. Because the Christian leaders have become comfortable with their new position. The church leaders enjoyed not being persecuted. I mean, who wouldn't? But more pertinently, the Christian leaders began to love and covet their newly gained power as power brokers in the Roman Empire, and they were willing to compromise themselves to avoid losing it. They were willing to go along with the plan of the mystics because they thought, well, you know, it doesn't sound right um, it was slapping the name of God and Jesus and Mary onto these onto these uh, pagan symbols. But if it keeps everything settled, if it keeps all the pagans quiet and keeps our money and power flowing in, well, I guess we'll do it. You see, the reason that the church grew and flourished during the persecutions is because they were forced by circumstance to rely completely on God for their day-to-day -day survival and sustenance. They didn't cling to their earthly lives because there was nothing appealing about their earthly lives. So they focused on God and on the true meaning of life, which I uh, talk about very early on in, in the uh, podcasts and, and blogs. However, as these newly freed and, and prominent Christians gained their status in the empire, they no longer needed God's constant protection and provision. They got that from the, from the empire. So their earthly lives became pleasurable. See, man's nature and tendency towards comparative thinking eventually led the church away from God and, and into the waiting arms of the mystics. The mystics enthralled the church leaders into playing a game in which the church was thoroughly outmatched. Over the centuries, as I've said, the mystics have perfected the art and strategy of conquest through infiltration. The church leaders didn't stand a chance. There is no compromise with evil that can result in good. You cannot compromise evil with good. Evil will always win. When you mix water and poison, water will not win. Poison will always win. You will not get slightly dirty water. You will get poison that just kills you a little more slowly, but it will still kill you. You mix water and poison, poison wins. You mix good and evil, evil wins. You, there is no compromise with evil that can benefit in the long-term good. The mystics knew this. The Christians didn't. The mystics knew that once introduced, that corruption that they introduced into Christianity would not be eliminated. They knew that they, it wouldn't be phased out. They knew it was just the opposite would happen, that that corruption would fester and grow until it affected the very fabric of church doctrine and became entrenched in church tradition. That's why 1,500 years after this plan was enacted, you're still putting up Christmas trees. You're still celebrating Easter and calling the resurrection of Jesus Easter Day. You are you're, the, the person who is in front of your church is still wearing a robe. There's still, they're still stained glass. There's still mistletoe and holly all over the place. There are still all of these ritualistic, paganistic things that God hates in every single church. I will give you a, one more example from, the, from actually the, the, the scripture in the, in the letter to the church at Pergamos. It says, 
that in verse 15, thus you have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. What is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? We talked about this in, in the, um, the letter to the church at Ephesus. The Nicolaitans are the people are those who wanted to rule over the church. Nikeo means to rule over. Laetans or laity means the people. These were people who claimed that they spoke for God. They claimed to be church leaders. They claimed to be what we currently call pastors and preachers, people who, who put themselves in a position of being the mediator between God and man. Jesus hates that because Jesus is the mediator between God and man. Jesus is the head of the church, not somebody wearing a bunch of robes and claiming that they have some kind of special relationship with, with God and that God will give them a special message on Saturday night and they'll come and preach it Sunday morning so that they can tell you what God really says and you don't have to worry about reading about it yourself. You can just sit there in the pews, absorb the message from this Nicolaitan and whatever they say goes. There are people to this day who worship their pastor to this, almost to the same degree as they worship their God our God, the God of the Bible. I grew up in such a church. I grew up with where my family, we we revered the preacher. The preacher could do no wrong. You could never say anything bad about Reverend so-and-so or the good Reverend Doctor whoever. They elevate this human being to a high position on par with God. Oh, he's the man of God. And since he's the man of God, he can do no wrong. He's, a, he's touched not mine anointed and do my prophets no harm, so forth and so on. That is a Nicolaitan. The Ephesian church did right in rejecting it. The compromising church of Pergamos did not. They did the opposite. They embraced it. And Jesus said he hates that. So as is their method, once the mystics gained a foothold in the church, they began to dominate it. They, and they slowly, gradually forced the true Christians out. And the pagan mystics of Rome became the priests, bishops, cardinals, and popes of the church. They became Pontifex Maximus priests and bishops and cardinals. These are all mystics. Mystics go wherever the power is and they take over and that's what they did in the church. I mean, sure, they replaced some of their pagan symbols with crosses and nominally invoked the name of Jesus in their rituals and put halos and angels' wings on their idols, but for all intents and purposes, they essentially continued and still do continue practicing the mysticism of ancient Babel, Nimrod, Semiramis, and Tammuz as they have done since the days of Genesis chapter 10 and 11 with Babel. In a case it has not become clear, the religion I'm referring to, this mixture of paganism and Christianity, is what we know today as Roman Catholicism. Catholicism is the blend of Christian doctrine and pagan practices that began with Constantine and endures to this day. The religion of Catholicism pretty much epitomizes everything I've written about religion and mystics on faith by reason. And I'm sorry if that's controversial, but it's the truth. It's documented. The history of Constantine is documented. The history of Theodosius is documented. Saturnalia, Sol Invictus, Easter, Ishtar, all that is documented and easily researched by anyone. And if you if you don't like it, I'm sorry, you just but need to take your religious blinders off and, and face the fact that Catholicism is a pagan practice and is led by mystics to this day. And we're going to talk a whole lot more about that in the next episode so if, you, if, it, if this episode bugs you well you're going to really 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 hate the next one because we're going to go into deep detail on how these pagan mystics clothed themselves in christian garments and ruled the world for a thousand years and rule a great deal of it to this day and it is all the fault of the church because the church compromised if the church has stayed strong and not compromised this would not have happened but because it compromised we endured over a thousand years of theocratic rule of people doing brutally horrible 
pagan things in the name of Jesus. And it has had a devastating effect on Christianity. And again, we'll talk about it a lot more in the next episode. So let's wrap things up by looking at Jesus' final um, uh, proclamations to the Church of Pergamos. So verse 16, repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. And what is that sword is? The two-edged sword is the Bible. He will, Jesus will use the word of God to, to as a sword to separate those who are still holy from those that are unholy. He's going. Jesus is going to break up this mixed marriage, this unholy union between the church and the world, and it will be painful. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That Jesus uses this to close out all of his letters. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat some of the, some of the hidden, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And what does that mean? Manna is the is the food that God gave the Israelites during the wilderness wandering. It's also called angels' food. It's hidden. See, I think this is a play, a play on, it's a pun, it's a play on words, it's a play on terms because the mystics were people who had hidden information that they used to rule over people. Hidden manna is life. Manna sustained people. Jesus says that you guys, you mystics are using your hidden knowledge to rule over to rule over the people well he who overcomes your nonsense I will give him hidden food that will give him life to sustain him For, keep going to keep going and I will give him a white stone and on that stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it there are many interpretations of what this white stone is one of the ones that I gravitate towards is the fact that when when uh, they had uh, democratic elections during this time um, in, in the ancient world you will be given a, a white stone or a red stone a white stone was a was a yes a vote, and a black stone was a no vote. So if you liked whatever, um, whatever was being voted upon, you put your white stone in. If you wanted to reject it, you put your black stone in. So I believe when you talk about the white stone, Jesus is saying he will he will if you overcome, he will vote for you, and and it will be a personal vote, a, a personal endorsement in your favor because it will have a na your new name written on it that nobody knows except you. So. Jesus is going to vote for you individually and vote in favor of you in a very, very personal way because your name will be written on that white stone. All right, well, that wraps up the section on the Church of Pergamos, the medieval church. And again, you cannot compromise. You cannot compromise as the church. You cannot compromise personally because evil will always win whenever you compromise with it. And it again, it leads to devastation, which we will talk about that devastation in the next episode. So, sorry I just went way over. I mean, I think I went double time. I went uh, twice, this is twice as long as I intended, but this is, I think this is really vital information. Uh, the next one, hopefully, will be a little bit shorter than this one um, when we get to Thyatira. And in Thyatira, again, we will talk, we talk, we'll be talking about the Roman Church. So, thank you for listening. Thank you for watching. I appreciate it. Uh, please um, do that, that thing we would like you to do on YouTube where you like and subscribe and share and hit notifications and do all that good stuff. Um, you can subscribe to Faith by Reason directly by just putting your email into the right navigation area and you will get these episodes as soon as they are available. And I will talk to you next week when we go to church number four, the church at Thyatira, the Roman church. Now, one last word for all of you who are Catholic or are nominally Catholic or upset about this. I will give you one note of solace. If Thyatira represents the Catholic Church and things are pretty bad there, then the next church, historically speaking, would have to represent the Protestant Church, wouldn't it? Well, here's the problem. 
that next church that represents the, the Protestant church, the church at Sardis, is one of two churches about which Jesus has nothing positive to say. He has some positive things to say about the church at Thyatira, but nothing positive to say at Sardis. So if Sardis represents the Protestant church in their own way, they're in worse shape than the Catholic church. All right, folks, that wraps it up. I will talk to you next week.